This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Facial recognition technology has become part of our daily lives. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. We choose to use it for our convenience, such as accessing our phones, and from there accessing our private information in applications like our bank accounts or Medicare records. It's also used by government for identification measures, like in law enforcement and for border control. And increasingly, companies are using facial recognition technology to access their services. But what happens to that biometric information and how are we protected when that data is sent to third parties? What is the state of the law in Australia? We're very fortunate today to be joined by Professor Ed Santo to talk about his new UTS project to outline a model law for facial recognition. Edward Santo is Industry Professor of Responsible Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney. He leads their new initiative on building Australia's capability on ethical artificial intelligence. From 2016 to 2021, Ed was Australia's Human Rights Commissioner. He is a fellow at the Australian Academy of Law, a visiting professorial fellow at the University of New South Wales, a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Human Rights and the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and serves on a number of boards and committees. In 2009, he was presented with an Australian Leadership Award, and in 2017, he was recognised as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. He previously served as Chief Executive of the Public Interest Advocacy Centre and was a Senior Lecturer at the UNSW Law School, a Research Director at the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Public Law and a Solicitor in Private Practice. Ed, thank you so much for giving us your time this morning and joining us to talk about Australian regulation of facial recognition technology. It's great to be with you. When we're talking about facial recognition technology, what exactly does that cover? Is it CCTV? Is it data from our iPhone? Or is it all of the above? And the short answer is it's all of the above. Uh, and it's kind of um, a bit bewildering because we've all become quite used to uh, having um, facial recognition built into our smartphones, um, tablets and other sorts of devices. And we really use that kind of as an alternative to putting in a PIN or a password. Um, and that, that definitely is part of facial recognition. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, it's also where... Um, we, we, we look at much more high-risk, high-stakes uh, uses of facial recognition, perhaps by the police to try and identify a criminal suspect. Um, so it's a big umbrella term, covers a whole bunch of subspecies of the technology, but just as importantly, it covers a broad range of contract contexts that ranges from kind of low risk to extreme risk. So what rights does the use of this technology impact then? So it it really depends on the context. So at a bare minimum, uh, facial recognition will uh, engage the right to privacy because our face, more than perhaps anything else, is who we are. We as humans use um, faces as a really important way of identifying people, but also of um, kind of understanding uh, how they are interacting with us. We, we obviously read emotion um, via people's faces and so on. Um, and so uh, anything that, it, that, that, that uses personal information will engage the right to privacy. But then when you think more deeply about 
facial recognition and what other human rights um, it engages, you have to think about the specific context. So I mentioned a moment ago um, using facial recognition in policing. And there have been some really high-profile um, kind of trials of the use of facial recognition that have resulted in high rates of error. I mean, a few years ago when the London Metropolitan Police did their big trial, um, they identified over 100 people, but it turns out that about 98% of those identifications were false positives. In other words, they were wrongly identified. Wow, that's a, that's a big number. Yeah, and when you think about what that means in practice, that then means that a whole bunch of other human rights are engaged as well. So if you are wrongly identified as a criminal suspect, you may well be arrested and even detained. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that um, right to liberty, which is you know a foundation of our entire liberal democratic system, that is something that facial recognition then engages. Um, and then... You know, if, if that information is then used, say, in a criminal prosecution, then it will engage your right to a fair trial. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is um, privacy is the right at a bare minimum that is engaged, but then you have to look um, to the context to determine what other rights are also engaged. So from an international law perspective, um, are we looking mostly at the right to privacy as it's derived from the ICCPR or is there another source that we sort of look to as to where that right uh, comes from? I think that's a really helpful uh, jumping off point is the ICCPR. Um, And um, really um, what the ICCPR has, has helped us do, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, is to see two key dimensions when we talk about uh, the right to privacy. The first is the one that we we think about perhaps intuitively uh, a lot, which is the extent to which I want to live um, uh, a life in the kind of public domain and um, the extent to which I want to, you know, seclude myself from the gaze of, of everybody else. Um, and I say we do that, you know, intuitively because, you know, we, we, we actually turn our minds to that every time we walk out our front door, right? Like, you know, you'll wear clothes at home um, that you perhaps wouldn't wear, uh, you know, publicly because you want to show perhaps a, a particular side of yourself publicly that you don't necessarily want to share. Um, and then, then you, you may say uh, in the workplace, um, you know, a smaller portion of things that you would be willing to say, you know, in the privacy of your home. So all of those things are, are, are really, really important, um, including when it comes to facial recognition. But there's another really important dimension to the right to privacy, which which is vitally important, and that is the idea um, of, uh, of, of us operating as a community. Um, so one of the kind of most scary things about the rise of facial recognition, to my eyes, is that if we leave it unchecked, then we could kind of fundamentally change the way we operate as a community or even as a society. And what, by that I mean one where we kind of detract from our collective sense of privacy, and that's through mass surveillance. So in other words, the more facial recognition, the more CCTV cameras there are out there, even if we can control certain aspects of, you know, how we come across and so on, um, that will still be a challenge to that other dimension of privacy, which, as I say, I, I consider to be just as important. And certainly from an international human rights law perspective, it is just as important. 
So in respect of of that right to privacy, the flip side to that argument is uh, the suggestion that giving up our privacy gives us a certain amount of security and safety as a community because that information can be useful for policing and for um, general security operations. Um, There's a limit to that, though, isn't there? Yeah, so broadly speaking, um, international human rights law and and the ICCPR specifically um, sort of distinguishes between two types of rights. There are absolute rights and non-absolute rights. So an absolute right, a good example of that might be torture. There there is no circumstance at all where torture is justified. Um, It's just absolutely clear cut. Um, By contrast, the right to privacy is non-absolute. What, what that means is that there are other human rights and indeed other legitimate objectives or interests that could justifiably detract from the right to privacy if you know the, the circumstances warrant it. Um, and so um, what you're referring to there is sort of law enforcement, national security, policing, those sorts of areas. That's kind of a, a, a really good example of where um, some restriction or limitation on your right to privacy can conceivably, I'm emphasising that conceivably, be justified if um, you do it in the right way. So what do I mean by in the right way? Um, really, there are three key principles that you have to satisfy. So you, um, a- any limitation on privacy to, you know, keep the community safe for, you know, national security or law enforcement has to be reasonable. It has to be necessary and has to be proportionate. And those, those things are really important because, um, in theory, if you made everyone live a completely kind of public life, um, in other words, you're able to surveil every single aspect of their activities, that may well actually make us safer, right? That, that may genuinely um, make it harder for people to commit crime. But um, that would not be a proportionate way of achieving that legitimate objective. Um, so there, there's a balance at play here. Um, so it's all very well to pursue that kind of law enforcement, um, community safety objective, but you have to do so in a proportionate way so you're not basically making it impossible to um, have some right to privacy that, that people enjoy. How does Australia regulate the use of this information? So obviously the Australian legislation looks at privacy on one hand and then law enforcement authorities on the other. So what's the state of our current regulatory regime for facial recognition technology? Yeah, so it's it's a bit different in different parts of Australia. Um, The starting point to acknowledge is that we do have some privacy laws, but they're quite limited. Um, They generally deal with data privacy. So um, they don't really... Um, deal directly with issues like surveillance. Um, and that's that's a real gap in our law. Um, and you've had eminent law reform bodies over two decades now that have consistently said that needs to be addressed. And governments tend to say, well, yes, we'll do it, we'll get around to it, but let's maybe do another inquiry first. And, you know, so it just keeps on kind of going round and round and round. And there is another um, federal government inquiry right now on privacy law um, but I'm not holding my breath that it'll lead to immediate change, even though we, we need to do it. The, the other aspect which is really significant is um, Australia doesn't have a National Human Rights Act or Bill of Rights, and we're the only kind of liberal democracy anywhere in the world now that doesn't have um, that 
it's kind of human rights legislation as part of our legal framework. And it's a, it, it's, it's a problem because what that uh, can enable or at least make easier is that balancing of rights that you referred to um, before. Um, so that's the bad news. On the, on the other hand, we do have some states and territories that um, do have a, a Human Rights Act. Um, Queensland is one of them. In fact, Queensland is the most recent jurisdiction, along with um, Victoria and the ACT, that um, have human rights uh, legislation. It does prompt a bit of that balancing process. Um it's when you actually stop and think about this facial recognition technology, it's it's a bit terrifying to think about how Orwellian in some cases the technology is. And, you know, I'm reading recently that 7-Eleven was um, stopped from stealing people's facial data and when they were doing customer surveys, for example. Um, so obviously the uses of this data is quite widespread um, in Australia, but also um, offshore. So the one of the issues with with data and anything to do with the internet, of course, is that the ownership of the data is is a bit difficult to pin down because our information can flow quite readily into and out of Australia. Um, and I think there was a, another recent um, information commissioner decision in relation to um, an American company that was using Australian facial recognition data as well. So I'll put a link to that on the show notes so people can um, have, a, have a read about that. Um, so with that in mind, how do other countries do it? Or, or, I mean, obviously every country will have a slightly different regime, but is there any particular countries that do it um, particularly well or are there any other models out there that look like they actually make this less of a horrifying um, horrifying experience? Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the messy reality is I think the world is all feeling its way a bit in this space. Um, so most other jurisdictions have a bit more in the way of privacy law protection to pull back on than we do here in Australia. Um, and that would definitely help. But facial recognition technology is genuinely quite novel. Um, it, it, it engages our, our rights um, in ways that are quite, in, in some ways, quite different. We've never kind of come across some of these issues, um, uh, certainly not the scale that we are now. And so what um, a number of jurisdictions are doing is they're saying, well, do we need some specific law dealing with facial recognition technology or perhaps more broadly biometric technology? And um, we're starting to see that, particularly in the US, not at the national level, but often at the city level or even at the state level. So, so, so there are two interesting sort of um, sets of laws that are starting to crop up. Um, the first is uh, one which is essentially saying, stop. <laughs> it's basically a moratorium. So um, even in, you know, the, the kind of home of new technology, um, at least in the United States, Silicon Valley, um, San Francisco has uh, a moratorium on the use of facial recognition in a policing context. I think that's really significant because a lot of this technology was developed right there. And so there's a lot of people in that um place who, who understand what some of the risks are and, and what they're saying is no no stop I'd rather not have the police use this at all than for it to kind of go on as um, was happening previously which was kind of having it largely unchecked 
um, by, by by specific laws. Um, so that, that that's definitely one one way of proceeding. Um, another way of proceeding is to try and pass a law that picks up the light and shade. Mm-hmm. Um, and my own view is that that's a better approach um, because if you take a human rights approach, there are some. Again, I'm going to choose my words carefully here. Conceivably justified ways of using facial recognition technology in um, even in you know really high stakes decision making. Um, if you can push appropriate, effective boundaries around the use um, of that technology to make sure that people's basic human rights are upheld. And so that, I think, is a more interesting approach because what it does is it says, well, look, you know, there are some you know, low-risk uses of facial recognition where perhaps existing law is sufficient or just needs to be applied better. There are some medium risks where we may be able to put in place some additional protections um, and then we can get the benefit of what can be a very powerful piece of tech uh, and foster good innovation that, that is of benefit to the community but, but subject to those additional um, protections, those boundaries that, that can kind of, you know, encourage good innovation. And then there, there's probably a third category of uh, a really high or extreme risk um, set of uses of the tech where um, there should be a very clear prohibition and uh, and that, that's just something where, you know, there's a red line that's that's, that's drawn there. And so um, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'd like to see more of. Now, going back to your original question, is there a jurisdiction that's got this absolutely right? No. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's partly about substance, it's partly about process. You could, you know, perhaps get a bunch of experts who'd sit in a room and they'd come up eventually with a really good law, um, but you need to bring the community along with you. And I, I suspect that completely expert-led approach without actually engaging their community wouldn't actually get you the best law. So what I think is really important is to empower the community to have a say and help draw those lines as between low, medium and high risk and then legislate accordingly. And and, and and frankly, none of the processes that I'm aware of overseas have really kind of gone down that path. Um, but but we're, we're seeking to um, in the project that I'm in. Well, that's a great segue to my next question, which is if you could tell us a bit more about your facial recognition model law project. Yeah, so the genesis of, of this project was really in my previous role as Australia's Human Rights Commissioner. We, we looked in great detail uh, at that, um, at the rise of facial recognition of biometric tech. Um, if you're interested in in kind of reading more about that, um, go to tech.humanrights.gov.au to look at the the final report we put out on that. Um, so chapter nine. Um, but the the nub of what we said was, look, there are a bunch of kind of relatively contained risks when it comes to facial recognition, which we're not too worried about. But there's a whole kind of world of high risk, um, high stakes use of, of facial recognition that we are very concerned about and, and we think that there should be direct regulation there. We need we think there should be a dedicated law there. Um, and specifically until that point we, we think that we need to press port. We need we need to have a moratorium until until that day. Um, and so we we received huge um, kind of incredibly useful input from the community. We did two rounds of public consultation we published our kind of submissions at least the submissions that people hope 
were, were happy to be published. And we that was the position that we, we formulated. And so now what we're doing in this new project is to say, okay, well, we've done that co community consultation. Let's come up with the outline of a model more. Let's do some, some further qualitative research as we go, but not a big kind of, we're not going to reinvent the wheel that we we had before in terms of, you know, inviting further submissions. Um, and then when we've got an outline of a model law, it'll be out there that hopefully can be drawn on um, here in Australia and perhaps in other jurisdictions as well to, to, to provide, I guess, um, greater protection for the community, but also spur good innovation using this technology because I'm not... I'm not opposed to that at all. I, I think you know, new tech, um, including facial recognition, can do can do great things, provided that there are those boundaries placed around it. So you've already touched on a few of the challenges associated with um, legislation or legislating this issue. So you sort of we've talked about that bringing the community along on the journey of introducing these laws so that they are accepted um, when they are introduced. Um, you also talked about um, dealing with the fact that the technology is is quite novel, so that makes it difficult as well, I guess, to predict how to draft a law to deal with new things as things change. It's always difficult to sort of foresee. Um, what the future might hold in terms of what this technology might be able to do. Um, and then you also mentioned uh, government inertia in response to ongoing review in this in this general area of law. And I think um, there's a number of reviews that are more holistic in relation to national security legislation that sweep up the facial recognition and the biometric data legislation in them. Um, in, is there? Are they, do you think these are the key issues, or is there anything else that comes um, comes up as as a concern for you in in tackling this project? Yeah, I think that that's a really good summation of the key issues. Um, another way of looking at it, which which draws in a couple of other really important um, factors, is what are we what are we trying to control? So, to put it positively, we want to spur good innovation, put prohibitions around harmful stuff. So, what let, let's kind of get tease away a little bit more about what we mean by the harmful stuff um, and, and really boils down to um, misuse of the technology and overuse of the technology. So when we talk about misuse, uh, we often need to kind of start with understanding what are some of the limitations with the tech um, and there are different types of facial recognition. The first is facial verification. Uh, and that's where what we're probably most familiar with. You know, if you're using it in your phone or your um, tablet device, it's really saying, is this person, you know, whose face is before the device, is it the same person whose single set of photos we have on file? Um, so that's that's kind of an amazing thing, but it's it is the least difficult form of um, facial recognition. So it's it's known as one to one. If you go up to the next type, that's known as one to many. And that's the kind of thing we see on, you know, cop shows and stuff, right, where um, you have a face in a crowd um, and that person is suspected of committing a crime, but you don't know who they are. You don't know their identity. Um, and so you take that still photo of someone, you know, planting the bomb or whatever it is, and you put it through a big database. And that could have, you know, thousands, millions in China. It could be, you know, over a billion people, right, of of headshot photos. And, and you're asking, you know, who is this person in that potentially enormous database of people? So that's one to many, and that is much harder. Technically, that is a much, much harder thing to achieve and much more prone to error. Um, now, I just want to pause on that because one-to-many facial um, recognition 
is generally less accurate than anyone that you or I know who isn't blind. Just got to pause on that because that's quite full on, right? So it, it's getting better, don't get me wrong, um, but it's getting better in the same way that my, you know, four-year-old um, is getting better at writing. Um, he, he hasn't started school yet. Um, he, you know, is not going to be writing, you know, the next Shakespeare play. Um, so we, we need to confront that reality that it's still um, prone to error at higher rates than humans. Um, the, the other part of that is what is that error rate evenly distributed across the community? Because the answer to that is no. So um, the, the tech tends to identify um, people who are light-skinned middle-aged men, so people who look like me, reasonably accurately or more accurately than any other category. So if, for example, you have dark skin, if you're a woman, if you're a person with a physical disability, the error rates increase um, massively. Uh, and so the, 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 the tech is just not as accurate in respect to those people. So those are the main two categories. There's a third category as well of technology. But, but when it comes to misuse, you, you really need to get to grips with that. And it can actually lead to discriminatory um, impacts um, when you think about um, particularly a policing context where people with dark skin have often faced a disproportionate burden of injustice. Um, and then finally, just to call back to, to, to where I started when, when we talked about overuse of the technology, that's that problem of surveillance. So even if the, the tech were completely accurate, it was perfect, it was far more accurate than humans are, um, we still ask, need to ask that fundamental question, which is, is this what we want to see? Namely, you know, CCTV cameras on every street corner, um, every aspect of our lives being surveilled like that. Um, I, I think the answer to that question is no, um, but, but that is a, a really fundamental question we need to ask. Thanks for that. I think it really highlights that this is quite a complex area to try and regulate and you've got quite a challenge ahead of you in, in identifying what these model laws might look like. Um, it also sort of triggered a, a memory for me uh, when you were talking about, you know, that zooming in on the crowd and identifying the, the human um, based on a photo from and then uh, aligning that to a database. I think the um, that community education and expectation of what technology can do for us is also another consideration that is probably going to be quite challenging because as we all you know every tv show ncis or whatever it is you watch they you know they've got a photo they zoom in they find the face they they correct the face they identify that that one in a million person and stop the bomb so there's there's that pop culture um pop culture misconception of technology's capabilities that you have to overcome there as well as a, an additional challenge um moving to a slightly different um different tack then to think about these technologies you've posted recently about the idea of um, dual affordance so wondering if you could unpack what that idea is and, and explain how that applies to facial recognition technology yeah i mean it's a bit of a three dollar term dual affordance in the sense that it, it actually it sounds very complicated but it's something that we all intuitively experience every day so um a knife is a very old technology that is dual affordance in the sense that it can um, be used innocuously um, or beneficially to slice a loaf of bread or whatever, you know, put butter on something. Um, or it can be used to stab someone. Um, it's the same technology. There's no difference to 
the actual fundamental thing itself. It's just um, its use is different and you get completely different outcomes based on the use. And so lots and lots of, you know, technologies, things out there are in, in a sense dual affordance. But, but one of the things that is really interesting about a lot of new technologies, especially that uses artificial intelligence, is that that issue of dual affordance is heightened. In other words, it is um, more common, more significant. It's a it's a bigger feature of the way in which that technology operates. And the, the, the painful thing for me to admit as a lawyer is that laws are only somewhat effective at stopping bad behaviour. Um, it is far more effective to make it hard for people to carry out bad behaviour. So that's, you know, one of the ideas behind um, you know, limiting access to guns, um, uh, as we have here in Australia and, and many other countries, um, that, you know, um, it's all very well to say you, you, you can't shoot people and murder or, or otherwise um, harm them. Um, and, and that will certainly, you know, perhaps turn off some people from, from you know, acting unlawfully. But it's much more effective to just make it really difficult for people to access guns, particularly the kind of people who are likely to ignore the law anyway. And so the way in which <clears throat> we design and develop new tech and the way in which we roll it out, the way we train people to use it, the way we oversee it, that all needs to have, you know, built into thinking that we want people to use these things for good and not for ill. And so nudging people always in the direction of using it for good and not for ill is really important in all of those areas as well as in how we regulate. Yeah, thank you for that. Was there anything else you wanted to add generally about facial uh, facial recognition technology and the law in Australia as it stands today? I mean, perhaps the last thing would be just to throw forward to where we're heading with some of this technology. So Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned a little while ago that there are three kind of main subcategories of facial recognition. So there's facial verification, which is sometimes known as one-to-one. There's facial identification, which is one-to-many, identifying someone in a crowd. Mm -hmm. The third third one is facial analysis. That's where the application, the tech application, uh, tries to assess something about you. It's usually something a bit subjective about you, like your emotional state, how responsible you are, um, perhaps whether you're attractive, all of those sorts of things. And there are, there's an increasing array of, of um, kind of applications that use facial recognition that purport to be able to do that. On the whole, they don't work. <laughs> I want to be really clear about that. They're really misleading um, because they don't have a foundation in science. I was going to say in the same way phrenology has been abandoned for some time now. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a bit like the modern form of phrenology. Um, it's a really good analogy. We, we, we want to... Um, like it's a really natural thing. We, we, we do, you know, use each other's faces as ways of reading all of those things like emotion and so on. Mm. Um, but we also know our own human limitations. We also know that someone who is smiling may not be actually happy. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a range yeah. of things there. So the prospect that a piece of technology might be able to read people's faces more effectively, accurately than we humans can, that's very alluring. Um, And so uh, that's something where I think we need to be devoting a bit of attention as well because even if the technology doesn't work, um, we can still be very susceptible to it 
and um, maybe especially because it doesn't work, um, we, we can be very susceptible. And so we, we, we need to really consider um, how we're going to um, put some boundaries around that as well. And um, we've already mentioned the um, the Human Rights Report, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, and I'll also link some of Office of the Australian Information Commission findings in relation to some facial rec- recognition technologies that have happened recently in Australia. But if um, I wanted to read more on this in addition to those uh, those resources, where would you point me to go? Yeah, there's some, there's some great reading out there now. I'll, I'll mention a few books, uh, but one thing which... I feel a bit uncomfortable about it, is I haven't come across a really full-throated kind of justification for why facial recognition is something we should all be leaning into. Um, it would be great to have it out there because I'd love to see it. I'd love to engage with it. But but to that end, um, there's an organisation called the Biometrics Institute that does put out really good, um, I think, well-considered material in this area. I don't agree with everything they say, I hasten to say. Um, but, it, but it's made up of government and companies that are either at the vendor side or at the user side. And so that's the side of the ledger, which is, you know, mm-hmm. trying to use this technology more um, and perhaps more effectively. Um, more on the sceptical side or, or, or kind of throwing up concerns, um, there's obviously the Human Rights and Technology Final Report from the Human Rights Commission, um, Atlas of AI by the wonderful <coughs> Australian um, expert in this area, Kate Crawford, and two others mm-hmm. that I'll mention, uh, Surveillance, Capitalism and Automating Inequality. Um, they're all um, books that, that I think are worth engaging with because um, they can kind of um, sh- throw some light on some things we should be a bit wary of. That's excellent. Thank you so much for that and those recommendations. Um, as I mentioned, I'll, I'll put them into the show notes. Um, well, thank you for canvassing such a complex issue in such um, an accessible um, and interesting way. Um, I'm sure that there is going to be a lot more to talk about and to see in this space, and we are particularly interested to see how your model law project uh, progresses. So we might circle back at some stage once once you've um, we've got to the the publication of of your findings of that report but thank you again for your time this morning i really appreciate it it's a pleasure speaking with you this podcast was made by the law and the future of war research group at the university of queensland law school a full list of episodes and links to additional material as well as our contact details are available on our website just search for law and the future of war This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.